Hi, this is Matea Roach. And I'm Aviva Lassard. And my name is Noor Azriye. And this is the crew from The Backbench. Do you enjoy this show and value the thoughtful and nuanced conversations we work so hard to bring you each episode? If you answered yes, then we need your support. For those of you who don't know, crowdfunding season is upon us. And this is the one time of year where we actually talk to you, the listeners, to try and directly sell you on why you should pay for something that you can just get for free. (laughs) We want to talk to you a little bit about why the backbench is important to us each personally. So for me, I've had a crazy year. I don't know if you've heard. And I was really excited to have the opportunity to reconnect with Canadian politics. I felt like I was in a spot where I could be doing kind of any number of things with my time, but... To work on a show that is doing critical analysis of what is going on in Canada right now that's offering different perspectives to listeners, it felt really important for me to do at this specific moment in time. And I was also just like genuinely so excited to get to work on this show, having learned a lot as a Candleland listener over the years, even and perhaps even especially when I heard perspectives that I didn't agree with or that I hadn't heard before. What I love about working on this show is being able to take the time to figure out what the biggest stories are in Canadian politics and digest them in a way that makes it easy for anybody to understand what's going on, craft super meaningful conversations about these issues and distill it in a way that's like not only entertaining, but like informative and accessible. It's almost like you took the words out of my mouth. I'm new to Canada and it took me a while before I really could understand the functionings of the government and it's bureaucracy. But now that I have more knowledge about really how that works, I'm able to like focus on politics. But the problem was that when I would look into it all, I didn't really find anywhere that was putting it in a digestible way for me. And what I really enjoy about Backbench is that we do it differently here. It's demystifying. We're really trying to tell you it as it is. No crazy language, no policies that make no sense. We're breaking it down. We're making it easy. We're doing the work so you don't have to. And hopefully we're making it like fun and interesting as well, because I feel like so many sources that talk about Canadian politics, it's just so dry. Here's what we want to do with your support. First things first, we can continue the great work that we have been doing. So more thoughtful analysis, ensuring that the product that we're bringing to you every two weeks is as good as it can possibly be. What I'm excited about is possibly seeing you in person. You know, we're talking about live events, bonus content, all of us in a trailer, taking a tour (laughs) around Canada, (laughs) showing you the world. Are we going to take the backbench on tour? Backbench on wheels, guys. It's backbench on wheels. Well, perhaps if we have enough money to sustain such a venture with the price of gas what it is, maybe we can make it happen. (laughs) We think it would be so dynamic and exciting to, you know, not just have a show that we bring into your ears every two weeks, but to actually be able to go to different parts of Canada, you know, again, famously not just Toronto. And I actually connect with people in person. With your support, you're showing us that you care about Canadian politics, you care about these deep dives and this discourse, and you care about the work that we're doing and the work that we put so much energy into. You are showing us that you want us to continue this amazing project. Look, we already know that you're loving our work. We read all the messages that you send us, whether it's emails, DMs. We want to keep making the show that you know, that you love, that you can trust in a day where we're not really seeing a lot of political discussions that are even 
productive, I guess. I would say there are few, if any, other places in Canada that are able to do the kind of in-depth reporting, uh, you know, that we see on some of the other shows at Canada Land, in-depth panel discussions that we see here. Very few other outlets that are able to do that kind of reporting without, like, being owned by a large conglomerate or being in some way beholden to interests that make it tough for them to have the kinds of conversations that we want to have here. So, We really do actually need listener support. It's something that's actually really crucial to keeping this operation going and to continuing to expand the kinds of things that we're able to do here. And it pays my bills. (laughs) (laughs) It's you who makes this show possible, and we can't do it without you. Sign up at Candleland.com slash join to become a supporter so we can keep bringing you stories from the best seats in the house. That's Candleland.com slash join. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and Game of Thrones-style machinations in leadership races, or maybe not, because I actually never did watch Game of Thrones. Today, the NDP leadership race in BC is dead. Long live the NDP leadership race in BC. And a federal handgun freeze that is supposedly the strongest action in a generation. We'll be the judge of that. Joining me this week, we have Stuart Thompson, Editor-in-Chief at The Hub. Welcome back. Hey. Returning to us after a stint in politics, Jaskaran Sandhu, co-founder of Boz News. It's nice to meet you. Failed stint in politics. Let's be specific (laughs) here. Let's be specific. (laughs) All right. You said it, not me. And last but not least, a new guest to our show, Arno Kapetsky, journalist and author and our inside man in BC. Hello. Nice to be here. Let's get into it. A lot of us are feeling very disillusioned with the party, and we're feeling like the kinds of changes that we want to see are blocked at every turn. I don't think that's a reason to rip up our memberships, and I won't be ripping up my membership. The BC NDP leadership has been decided, but not through a vote. What was once a race became a victory lap. David Eby became the only remaining candidate in the running after Anjali Apadurai was disqualified. This means that David Eby will be sworn in as Premier of British Columbia as current Premier John Horgan is stepping down after leading the province for five years. This is not how I think any of us expected this leadership contest to end. Allegations emerged that Apaturai broke campaign rules. We got the details of this in a leaked report authored by BC NDP executives, which recommended that she be disqualified. There was then a vote by a few dozen party executives, which formally disqualified her. Apatarai is alleged to have worked with environmental organizations, including Dogwood, to sign up supporters in the leadership race, and it's been also alleged that she engaged in, quote, serious improper conduct. The argument really comes down to how much did our campaign communicate with those other third-party campaigns? Because it's not their membership drive that was the problem. It's whether we had any connection with them and whether we accepted that help in any way. And I maintain that we did not. Apatarai argues that her team was not aware of this supporter drive beyond just seeing it on social media and also that they didn't coordinate with these groups to do this. But despite these rebuttals, Apatarai is out. What does this story teach us about provincial politics and about the internal workings of political parties? Let's get into it. So Arno, some are most likely relieved that Apatarai is out as she was challenging the NDP to do more for climate change. But other party members are incensed after having been motivated by her campaign. Some people say that they're frustrated but unsurprised that a young climate activist woman of color would be disqualified from a leadership race when she seemed to have a serious chance of winning. What do you think members of the BCNDP are feeling right now? Probably relief that it's over. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyone who says that there is a simple uh, version of this or that anything is black and white, I think uh, you can distrust that take. Apaterai and her folks themselves described it as an insurgent campaign, and I think that is how it was felt from within the sitting caucus of the BC NDP. Uh, David Eby had, I think, 90% endorsement of his caucus, and Angelia Paderai, she inspired me and a lot of people, but she's never held office a day in her life, and for her to ramp from zero to the premier's office, sort of against the wishes of the sitting caucus uh, would have been pretty dramatic. Uh, suddenly she's in charge of a province and that's really unprecedented in Canadian history, I would say. The things that she was saying that she was going to do that she campaigned on were to cancel coastal gas link pipeline, cancel the Site C mega dam that is being built here, stop old growth logging. These three propositions alone would have instantly launched BC into somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 billion of debt uh, because they are canceling contracts that they had signed. And so to do that at a moment when not only are we suffering a climate crisis, but we're also in the midst of a healthcare crisis, public education is broke, we're recovering from a pandemic, there's a housing crisis, an opioid crisis, the script would have just written itself for the opposition in the next general election if Apaterai had become premier and tried to do those things. And it would have kind of melted the party down. That's how the NDP sitting members and the establishment, I think, saw it and felt about it. So I think that makes a lot of sense in terms of how caucus felt about it. Do you think among the party membership, sort of people who perhaps signed up, you know, in hopes of voting in the leadership race, like what would you say the mood is among sort of lay people, NDP supporters? Sure. Well, now you've got, I mean, now there's twice as many NDP members as there were before. And a lot of them signed up to vote for a Paderai because they are terrified of a climate emergency that nobody's taking seriously enough. And so those people feel super betrayed. They were told, okay, look, look, you can sign up for the NDP and vote for the leader. That's the deal. And then they kind of got the rug pulled out from under their feet at the last minute. So I think definitely a lot of people feel really betrayed. I think there's also a pretty healthy cohort of people who, like me, have very mixed feelings about all this, who would have liked to see a debate ensue because the NDP has been really good at shutting down a debate around their climate policies. And Apaterai sort of threatened to do that or promised to do that, depending on how you see it. And uh, the fact that that was, you know, the NDP was looking for a reason to disqualify her and they found one. You know, for me anyways, I really saw it as there was really two narratives that collided head on in this escapade. And both narratives have a lot of truth. And the first one, in very broad strokes, goes like this. The BC NDP is one of the most progressive provincial governments in the country, which is a really precious commodity at this time of surging right-wing sentiment. And Apaterai threatened to take that down and, and sort of pave the way for a conservative takeover of the province. Uh, and then the other narrative goes that Apaterai was really trying to get some concrete action on climate and environmental issues, which is the NDP's weak link here. Uh, that's sort of where their progressive credentials end is on environmental policy. And so she was not threatening to blow up the party. She was trying desperately to save uh, what's left of this world. You know, people are feeling pretty catastrophic in this province. We're really on the front lines of climate change. Uh, in the last year, we have made international headlines over and over and over again for forest fires and floods and heat waves. And even on the very eve the night that Anjali Abadarai was disqualified, 
Vancouver and Victoria were shrouded in wildfire smoke at the end of October uh, because of an unprecedented drought. Uh, so that symbolism was not lost on anyone. So Paterai has claimed that the rules changed after her campaign began and that rules were enforced retroactively or were enforced sort of not at the point maybe where a breach of the rules was discovered. So Stuart, what do you make of those claims? <laughs> I'm highly inclined to believe them. I think this is just so interesting because a similar drama played out in the BC Liberals with Aaron Gunn on the right side of this. And I think there's maybe a trend here to keep an eye on where you know, there's sort of the other version of this was Pierre Polyev getting all of these voters who'd never really voted before. Totally. A large part of his voters were people who just were new to politics. I would imagine that the people who are voting in the BC NDP leadership, they weren't new to politics, but they were probably activist types who would never really sully themselves with partisan politics. And then you have like people on the right who, you know, maybe they were just uninterested in the pandemic kind of activated them to think about politics. And this is uh, something that predates the pandemic. You know, I think if you are on the left here, you may think, why do we have gatekeepers keeping this person out of, you know, the people actually like this person? Why would we keep them out of the race? But if you think about what happened in the U.S. with Donald Trump, the Republican Party was too weak to stop him. And you know they would have in the early days of that primary vote. If they had have gotten rid of Trump, I think they definitely would have done that. So I think there are some benefits to these institutions having some power to say, hey, our job is to get elected. We know how to do that. This is a private club. This isn't a general election where everybody gets to vote. We get to decide who gets to vote. And we're going to assert ourselves. The problem that you have is it leaks people on the other side. People who are really enthusiastic about your party are going to be completely uninterested now or disaffected. Or there's going to be the worst case scenario for the BC NDP where you get a splinter party or people move to the Greens and then they work actively against you. So this is sort of a delicate dance that every political party and every political leader has to deal with. If the NDP argument right now is we need to be electable and we need to be pragmatic and that means we can't stay true and strong on principles that are important to us, then just rename your party the Liberals and call it a day. Right? Like, wh why are you choosing to be NDPers then? Then don't be dippers. Uh, go become Liberals. Because uh, that's literally what they say and literally what the NDP chastises over and over again. I think, uh, to Stuart's point, uh, we also have to remember that parties are private clubs. Like th That's how they operate. They're, they operate as private clubs. And sometimes in a private club, the establishment will bully out anyone that tries to shake things up too much, which I'm not a fan of. I, I think that's terrible. I think it's terrible for democracy. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, where, where the big changes actually happen are at the party level. That, that's where you get the people that actually care about policy and ideology. It's where you get people that actually care about what happens at the party level. And that shapes your leadership. It shapes your brass. It shapes your direction and trajectory as a party. What gets sanded out a little bit when you go into a general election because you're all fighting for that you know, mushy middle, uh, the, uh, the undecided voter. But at the end of the day, you know, EB had the support of caucus. Well, what does that mean? That means diddly squat. Like, it means nothing. You know, caucus is, tends to be the laziest membership drivers and sellers in, in every leadership. Endorsements mean nothing. If you just wanted to uh, judge the, the caliber of a candidate based on caucus support, then don't don't have a leadership. Just everyone get together as a caucus and appoint your leader and call it a day. If that was your intent from the beginning, then just do it. Why play this dance with folks? And as we were talking about, pull the rug underneath them. Now, at the end of the day, 
Anjali ran a insurgent campaign, yes, but she ran a passionate campaign with actual real emotions attached to it, uh, with an actual real cause attached to it that matters to a lot of voters in the NDP. Uh, and instead of giving a fair shake, what the party did is they changed the rules. They literally changed the rules. They redefined the rules and then retroactively applied them. As a lawyer, that is utter bullshit. Like that is such bullshit that that was allowed to be done here to punch Anjali in the face, take away the crown that she was rightfully going to win because EB's feelings were getting hurt because he got the caucus support, which again, means absolutely nothing, but the people didn't support him. And, and at the end of the day, that's his fault. And I think if we're serious about a democracy, if we're serious about leadership races, then allow it to be a race. Wow. I have a lot of mixed emotions right now. There, uh, This is a theme of my day. I simultaneously agree with everything you just said and also feel like it's just a little disingenuous to suppose that the NDP is going to be like, oops, I guess you beat us at our own game. Come on in. Like every political party is going to do what it can to protect its own best interests. But the NDP is not supposed to be every other party. Like the whole point of the NDP but that's why is the to NDP be the cautious of government. that's why the NDP is not holding power anywhere else in Canada, including federally. A hundred percent. And so instead of the new Democratic Party, we should call it the new Liberal Party and call it a day. At least we're all being honest with each other. That'd be so confusing in BC. <laughs> well, in BC, you could do that because the Liberals are conservatives here and the NDP, I guess, is now the Liberals. I mean, first of all, the, you know, the question of uh, did they change, did the NDP change the rules retroactively has not been decisively proven. If you read the report that the NDP signed off on, there's a paragraph there where they, they make pretty clear that you are not allowed to collaborate or collude with a third party. And one of the central charges here was that Angelia Patterai's campaign collaborated with an environmental NGO called Dogwood, and that is against the rules. And she doesn't deny that they did work together. I mean, the campaign manager of Dogwood was helping to write the campaign literature for Apatari's campaign. The director of the board of Dogwood became the financial agent for Apatari's campaign. So there was a ton of overlap. Was that made clear that that was illegal from the get-go? I don't know. where that Was it actually retroactively changed? I think both sides have uh, some legitimate claims to their version of events. And I think, you know, what one person said to me was that every time you have a leadership race or a campaign, rules get bent, rules get broken. Sometimes people get penalized and disqualified for it. Sometimes they don't. There is a lot of discretion, no doubt. No doubt the BCNDP got a little desperate and over played their case. So yeah, I'm not trying to say the NDP is, is faultless here, but to say that they're just being dippers, I also feel like the NDP is in a real bind, and that's what makes this a national story, not just a provincial story. The NDP is trying to be progressive on a number of different fronts, and traditionally they've been the Workers' Party and the Labour Party and the, and the People's Party, and now they're progressive also means environmental issues, but in a province and a country where the majority of labour and jobs are in environmentally destructive industries, it is very hard to be progressive on both those fronts. There's a real paradox at the heart of what the NDP is trying to do. Yeah, look, I think the NDP is only in a bind if they had a preferred candidate winning that race and that person was not winning. Then you're in a bind in that situation. And that's yeah. exactly what we had here, right? We had this situation of the establishment being lazy organizers, not taking this leadership race seriously, having a quote unquote insurgent campaign come in, which looked absolutely clean and fought a hard, passionate, emotionally compelling fight. 
that pushed the establishment to the brink. And again, at the end of the day, when I look at the NDP, what stands out for me about the NDP is that here's a party that likes to believe it has a conscience, likes to believe it does politics differently, likes to believe that it has a moral high ground over its competitors on issues that are very important to a lot of Canadians, like the environment or, or labor or what have you. But when push comes to shove, acts like every other single party. And if that's the case, then the NDP actually needs to look in the mirror. Now, thankfully for them, Anjali is still being a team player. Like she's still saying we got to support the party. She's still saying we're going to stick around. She's obviously incredibly upset by what happened, but she hasn't gone nuclear the way the party went nuclear on her. And I think that more than anything is a testament of who is in the wrong here and who's in the right. Speaking of kind of this taking the nuclear option, right? Like the BCNDP did very much, I think, jump to the strictest possible response to any sort of allegation of like wrongdoing uh, in a campaign just by immediately disqualifying the candidate, right? Like there wasn't really any discussion, at least as far as it seems to me, of doing some sort of like sanction against her other than just simply DQing her. Are there other alternative routes that could have been taken? And then do you think that this response would have been the same had Apatari been in the same position, done the exact same things, but the BCNDP was like not in government? Like, do you think the fact that they jumped to this strict decision was colored at all by the fact that she would have become the premier were she to win this race as opposed to just becoming opposition leaders? Yeah, I think it was a full-on panic. Mm-hmm. I th- it's just such an interesting thing, right? I remember I was in Alberta when Alison Redford won that leadership race. And that was a different one because she was the justice minister at the time. And she had some kind of experience, you know, leading a ministry. But she was not the favorite. That is an incredibly difficult situation to come into as premier. You're now in charge of the entire province. And Alison Redford, she won a majority and didn't make it through that majority term because of dissent in the caucus. And part of the problem was that she was not disposed to go out and shake hands and listen to people and, you know, mend fences. She felt like she had won so she could just do whatever she wanted. But I think the situation of coming in as premier of a province and then having to run it, having never done anything of the kind ever before, I think is just I I can't even fathom that. The question of if they were not in power, would it have been different, I think is a really interesting one because you can imagine the panic being a little bit higher because they were imagining the worst possible outcome of governance getting really bad. But I think either way, parties want to win. And if you are the NDP in BC, you're a little different from the National Party, which at sometimes, you know, appears to be, you know, a principled party that will forsake winning in favor of keeping to some of its principles. But in BC, you're in power. You have to do certain things to stay in power. I think we we underestimate how incredibly difficult it is to sell memberships in a leadership race or even a nomination. It is incredibly hard to get people motivated to buy a membership, even if they believe in you. So when that happens, it is a phenomenal thing. There's nothing that can match the power of that. And, and I think here in the case of Anjali, that she had the power of folks just believing in what she was selling. You know, you had a question about the due process and if, if the penalty was proportional to the crime. I don't think it was. I don't think it was proportional at all. Usually, the it, A, when you lay out penalties for supposed or in this case uh, allegations, uh, it is a progressive ladder you walk up. You know, it starts with something smaller, whether it's fines, whether it's uh, you know canceling certain memberships that came in in certain ways. You work your way up into uh, complete removal. Like it, it shouldn't happen that your nuclear option is your first option. There's so many question marks associated with how the party did its due process. There's so many questions around. 
how the party handled even the complaints and what it was drumming up to be as serious as it is, considering the fact that the NDP has a long history, a very long history of third parties getting involved in different races, including unions. So due process wasn't there. I, I don't believe due process was there, and I don't think the penalty matched the crime at all. What is this story really say about like party leadership or party, you know, perhaps the paid executives that make decisions, call the shots, like, what does it say about their desire to maintain the status quo? Because I think perhaps in the case of like Pierre Poiliev, and in some cases, uh, like the Alberta examples that we're talking about, it seems as though these insurgent candidacies aligned perhaps with objectives of being electable. Whereas in this case, it seems as though the BCNDP, like the big thing that we keep coming back to is this idea that like a powder eye would have basically been the captain of the sinking ship and caused the party to lose the next election sort of thing. What is like the story going forward? Like what does this say about the character of the people who are controlling political parties generally? I think that is the key question is what happens now? Because the dance always has happened with these political parties is that they want to pull in some activist energy. They want people on board so they'll knock on doors and they'll recruit people and they'll sort of fuel the party from behind the scenes, <laughs> not being like front and center. There was always sort of like a dance going on where you would give them something here and you give them something there. You would allow a candidate here and it worked pretty well. I don't know right now whether we're looking at some kind of post-pandemic energy Definitely you saw this with Pierre Polyev, where people were going out to rallies because they were mad, but also because they hadn't been out in a while. Like they were going out to these things. We had protests like that. So there is the sense that maybe it's a pandemic thing. The other thing could be that this is just this sort of growth of the online world where we're connecting more people. Things go viral. There's this contagion that happens over certain issues. And these are big issues, like the climate issue is something everyone is concerned about that. Every election, we get that polling that shows the conservatives need to care about the climate to get suburban voters in the GTA, right? Like there's always that sense that this is just that issue, that it's on everyone's top 10 and it's on a growing number of people's top three issues. Um, so the question for parties is, how long can they hold this off? Because there is a chance of becoming totally irrelevant. Like if you're not in touch with what people actually care about and you're just trying to have your own little club where you are right down the middle and you talk about issues that you know of focus grouped at like 60%, that is a dangerous road to go down. That's You could say that's almost more dangerous than actually having bold ideas and engaging people that way. And I think this situation in BC is maybe a bad example because it was so stark. Like you have... Pierre Polyev, who's an insurgent, but he had like a ton of caucus support and he's been an MP for ages. He was sort of broadly accepted by the party. Totally. But I think if you are in a position of leadership in a party, you are right now thinking, can we do this thing we've always done? You know, we string along the activists, we get their support, we get their door knocking, but we never let them knock us off our election course and platform. I think Stuart makes like the most amazing point. The activists that the establishment hate actually drive their victories. They're the actual only ones who donate money. They're the ones that actually go and door knock. They're the ones that care. They go on Twitter and they fight other people. It's all your activists. Uh, and so when you gut punch them like the, the establishment did here, don't expect their undying loyalties forever because the insurgency won't stop. The insurgency will just come again, but in a different form. Honorable Speaker, I have a point of order. Yes, Jaskaran, what's your point of order? As someone who just lost a heartbreak of a municipal election, uh, and uh, there may be various factors for why, 
can we please ensure that all future elections uh, don't happen on major religious festivals, i.e. Diwali, so that uh, folks like myself can actually get elected? That is maybe like one of the closest things to a point of order we've actually ever had on this segment, but I'm going to still call it not a point of order, but a really good suggestion to help raise municipal turnout, which was so abysmal during these most recent municipal elections. And I think if you extrapolate like the South Asian community, it's going to be like half of what the general turnout was. Uh, and it's a heartbreak. We wouldn't have an election on Christmas or Easter or even Boxing Day. We will never even have an election on Boxing Day. Maybe next time we can do that and even it out. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? We got to make it all even. Yeah. We need to conduct an experiment and see how turnout is if we have an election on a Christian religious holiday. Honorable Speaker, I have a point of order. Yeah, Stuart, what's your point of order? I just wanted to flag something. I think this is interesting and I think it's going a little under the radar. You'll see in the headlines now some labor disputes going on in Ontario. We're dealing with high inflation. People are feeling like their buying power is depleted. It's 7% lower in the last year than it was last year. And this is something that economists are looking out for, which is what they call the wage price spiral, where we start to assume that prices are going to keep getting higher. And then so we say, I'm going to buy that thing because the price is going to go up in like four months. And then if we say, hey, I want my wages to go up to match inflation, which is a totally reasonable request, which every worker should be doing, because you can see in the numbers our buying power is going down. That also pushes up inflation. And I think it's interesting to see what's on the minds of our political leaders right now and like corporate leaders and union leaders who are dealing with a lot of really weird incentives right now. I don't think any employee should be satisfied with the way their wages are right now. And I wonder about how if you're Doug Ford, you look at this where you go, I don't want this intractable labor dispute. And I don't want to tell people during high inflation, I can't raise their wages. But as we've seen from Tiff Macklem, who had to be like the Grinch and say, don't do this, could cause problems down the line. I think it's something to keep an eye on because it's going to keep getting worse as we get these labor disputes ongoing. Not a point of order, but definitely something to look out for in the future. Thank you for the grim Grinch-like warning. <laughs> Not even close to a point of order. <laughs> Honorable Speaker, I have a point of order. Yeah, Arno, what's your point of order? Well, as we speak today, it is Halloween day, October 31st although this has already passed by the time our dear listeners are tuning in. But this morning, this is also a confession, my seven-year-old daughter was having a hard time waking up, uh, and then I turned things around with the video Thriller by Michael Jackson. And I feel our cultural conversation around whether it's okay to listen to his music or not has not really been fully resolved. So I would like to propose that on this one day of the year, at least, uh, this could be a duty-free day, musically and culturally speaking, for at least one song of Michael Jackson's. Because for those who haven't seen it, which is probably nobody, that is a heck of a Halloween video and a very funky song. And it got my daughter right out of bed and into the Halloween spirit and off to school on time. Not a point of order, but if there are any other seven-year-olds listening to the backbench, uh, yeah, go watch the video. I mean, it is like one of the best probably music dance videos of all time. Um, yes. Not a conversation, thankfully, that we need to have on the backbench, but good mention. <laughs> Our government introduced measures to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. Today, our national freeze on handguns is coming into force. It is no longer legal to buy, sell, or transfer a handgun in Canada. 
This is one of the strongest actions we've taken on gun violence in a generation. On October 21st, federal regulations aimed to cap the number of handguns in Canada went into effect. The freeze was announced last May and has been touted as the strongest gun control measure in 40 years. There are some exceptions to the new rule for elite sports shooters, though sporting groups argue that this exception should be expanded to include a wider range of recreational shooters. The freeze is part of the larger Bill C-21, a firearms control package which is currently before Parliament. This is a multi-pronged bill which aims to do a number of things, including tackle organized crime, reduce smuggling across the border, and automatically remove gun licenses from people known to have committed domestic violence or engaged in criminal harassment. The new legislation would also increase maximum sentences for gun smuggling and trafficking. The Trudeau government claims that there are 70% more handguns in Canada today than in 2010 and that handguns are the number one homicide gun killer in the country. These are all impactful statistics, but it's unclear whether banning handguns will actually make a big impact on this type of crime because many guns in the country are already not registered legally. Conservatives say that they don't see this new program working. Here's what Conservative MP Raquel Dancho had to say. We don't agree that it will work. We've been consulting experts across the country for the past year at Public Safety Committee, and police across the country have told us that the problem is not with legal gun owners, it's with those who smuggle guns in from the United States to use in criminal and gang activity. What will this freeze actually do? Because from a general glance, it feels like maybe not that much. So first things first, Stuart, do you feel like the liberals are posturing with this bill? Like, do we have a sense that this handgun freeze is actually going to make things safer for anybody? Yeah, I really don't want to be cynical, but (laughs) there might be some political considerations to this one. Let's not pretend that the liberals are the only party that does things for political considerations that may or may not do anything at all. But I think there's probably a more interesting angle to this, which is that crime went up uh, in the wake of the pandemic. In the U.S., it went up like crazy. Um, In Canada, it went up a little bit, not a whole lot, like homicide rate went up. And I think there is the perception that it went up a lot higher, too, among people. And I think we're starting to see public safety become a live issue again. And, you know, this was something that was big in the 90s. It sort of seeped into the 2000s. Like, you saw the conservative version of responding to this problem with a lot of the stuff that Peter McKay did as justice minister, which was we're seeing a lot of it in the news lately because it's being struck down by the Supreme Court. But things like mandatory minimums, you know, uh, the consecutive sentences thing that was recently struck down, those were meant to appeal to people who were worried about public safety. And the liberals, the way that they handle that is with gun control. That's an issue that they can use to wedge the conservatives on. I think it's an issue where the conservatives are probably a little bit out of the mainstream. I'm going to admit my ignorance here. Can we explain wedge politics, exactly what that means? Yeah, so the, probably the the all-time wedge is when the liberals catch the conservatives on abortion, right? It's an issue that they've got nothing they can say on it that's acceptable in the mainstream, but they can't totally betray their position on it because they'll lose the sort of base of their party. So they're like wedging them into a corner. Yeah. Kind of thing, right? I think so. They, like the... The metaphor of the wedge has never been 100% clear to me, but that is how it plays out in politics. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it means. (laughs) 
It's one of those things that everybody says, but it's kind of like, it's like business speak. It's very, I'll circle back on that. It's one of those like just words that people say. The problem too is that we have this um, rural and urban divide too, where, I mean, I worked as a newspaper reporter out in rural Alberta and the idea of a gun in rural Alberta is just like a tool you have on the farm. Whereas if you talk to your friends in the city, you know, it's a scary thing that they can't imagine anybody wanting to own. Uh, There's just a completely different mindset here. But this is, I think, something that will probably come up during the election. And the liberals will say the conservatives didn't vote for this. They don't want to keep you safe. And the conservatives will say, here's our criminal justice platform. That's how we're going to keep you safe. And it'll be interesting to see how salient that is in the minds of voters. I have cousins who live on a farm and they definitely have a shotgun or two lying around. Absolutely. But they're not packing handguns to shoot gophers with. I am one of those city folks who was like, what the fuck is the argument for people to be allowed to have handguns in this country? It's kind of hilarious. Like I get shotguns on a farm rurally, uh, but to pack things around in your pocket seems inane and, and stupid. And it's amazing to me that police forces themselves are not speaking up to prevent this. Because if I was a policeman, I would not want to be wondering if people have handguns concealed. That's just my city slicker perspective. Well, I can give you my suburban slicker perspective on this. I think the way the conservatives look at this is that when we look at gun crime uh, and we look at what the issue is on the streets, it's not necessarily the legally bought and owned guns that that are being used in these crimes. What tends to be used are illegal guns or guns smuggled uh, from America or or elsewhere that are still going to exist in the system, even if you put in the buyback program, even if you ban, quote unquote, assault style rifle, which we still don't necessarily have a definition for, uh, even if you try to pit or wedge uh, against rural Canada and urban or suburban Canada on this issue. You know, crime always will rank one of the highest and most important items on uh, anyone's policy list. Uh, if you talk to voters, you know, crime is something that they, they will all bring up. And it, at the end of the day, it may not be statistically defined. It may not be empirically uh, shown, uh, but it is a feeling you have on the ground that crime is always out of control. You know, when we look at Peel Region, for example, sometimes the gun debate is used as almost a proxy on a larger debate on, you know, what does our policing look like and does our policing actually have the resources to to handle the issues that, that they get calls for. Uh, and, and in this uh, current juncture, you know, police would argue that they don't have the resources to uh, tackle every single call they get into the station. And that's a harder conversation to have. It's easier to just talk about guns and banning guns and using that as a proxy on whether you're soft or hard on crime. And, and I think that's where the wedge is created. Because if we ban these guns, we're, that we show we're tough and the conservatives are, are double speaking, conservatives' uh, rebuttal will be, these are not the guns that need to be banned. These are not the guns that need to be actually stopped. And we're punishing law-abiding citizens for uh, really theater. I do believe you need a holistic approach to solving this issue. I do believe you need to talk about you know, tougher sentences. I think you do need to talk about you know root causes and, and, and doing more to invest uh, efforts there. But we can't have one conversation without the other. I think that's true. And it's like there are two main political parties have chosen one side of it. And <laughs> there's like no way to reconcile the two. I actually was talking to a conservative who said, you know, part of the problem is that when, and I'm not saying this is representative of the conservative party, but when you write a platform, you grab the guy who's the expert on guns and they're always like gun nuts. <laughs> so it's always like a little bit more in favor of guns than you would want it ideally to be, but nobody knows enough about guns to really do that. I, the exact same thing will happen. We've had a few high profile issues of 
you know, repeat offenders, people who have gotten out um, with what most people in the public would probably say was too early and then committed crimes. The liberals find it hard to be hard on that side of the issue. And that's where the conservatives will come in, right? So we'll have this kind of back and forth on public safety. And I think that's the thing that I'm most interested in. The salience of this issue seems to be rising. It hasn't been big for a while, probably since those early Harper years. Uh, I think it's coming back. A couple of things jump out to me about the conversation that's being had. One is like, I personally find the sort of conservative response of, but the illegal handguns are the ones that we need to be worrying about to not really be responsive to the idea of just like banning handguns outright, right? Because it's one of those responses that just kind of accuses the ban of not really doing maybe as much as it should, but doesn't actually make that much of an argument in favor of guns. And I think that that speaks to sort of how effective this issue is as a wedge, right? Because the conservatives can't really say anything to piss off that part of their base for whom gun rights are important, but also don't want to actually articulate or make an argument as to why people should be allowed to have guns. And so what they're left doing is like making this super mitigatory response. The other thing that comes out is like, we've been talking a lot about other responses that are required to gun violence in Canada, the notion that perhaps police like need to be given somehow more resources to deal with this. Perhaps we need to look at sentencing again. I'm wondering like how this conversation sort of fits into the wider conversation that was being had, I think that really kicked off in like 2020 about the role of policing and about like how we should sort of deal with crime generally. I think violent crime is probably like one of the few things that people agree should still be punished just across the board quite harshly, right? Because of the severity of what it is. So I'm wondering if you folks have thoughts about like the way that strict anti-gun legislation might interface with those kinds of conversations, whether there are any problems in terms of like certain communities becoming over-policed as a result that we might need to watch out for going forward as these sort of new stricter anti-gun measures come into effect. You know, I live in Vancouver. We have the downtown east side here uh, where things have been getting a little bit more, well, hectic and crazy with the opioid crisis huge tent compounds. I live really close to it. I have a lot of sympathy and compassion for that community. You know, we just had our civic election here, a new mayor who was elected on a real tough on crime approach. You know, we promised to get 100 new RCMP officers to patrol the downtown east side and and really crack down after what some people saw as sort of a bit of a soft approach, which I really couldn't disagree with more. I think both things can be true. There there can be some dangerous aspects of a population like the one in the downtown east side, but ultimately I think it's a social problem of poverty and racism and institutional neglect that has been building for dozens of years. And the idea that you can solve these social issues with policing solutions seems totally misguided to me. And I think that's a lot of the time, the way this conversation goes is the tough on crime crowd are like, well, we just need to lock up these dangerous criminals. And then the other side are like, no, no, we need to cure poverty. And uh, maybe we, maybe a little bit of both uh, could happen, but it, it, it's hard to have those kinds of nuanced conversations, I think, at high policy levels sometimes. Whether on the debate of we need to ban all guns or not, I, I think comes down to like a, a philosophical argument on whether or not we believe government or the state uh, should be the only body to have access to weapons. And that's a deeper philosophical argument and one where there's a lot of history to suggest that you know, the state and government should not be the only ones to have a monopoly on weapons uh, and citizens should have a right to defend themselves or, or to, to have uh, weapons that they can use to defend themselves. And that's a deeper conversation to have where it's very subjective and it's going to depend largely on who you speak to and, and kind of maybe the traditions of where, where the thought process are on that. As far as, uh, you know, Policing, uh, you know, there, there's a large conversation that we've continued to have, especially ever since uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, 
on what does good policing look like? Again, philosophical questions on is there good policing? And I believe, uh, to Arno's point, that you need strong policing. You need police to have the tools they, they need to tackle violent crimes, for example. You need officers to do the job of responding to even calls that come from citizens or residents. But at the same time, there's some things that police is absolutely not good at. Like the police should not be handling mental health crisis and mental health calls. Police need to build trust within communities as partners and not necessarily as kind of external forces that come down as a hammer. Those are deeper conversations that that need a lot of tackling. And I think there's been a large debate around that. And, you know, how how does that actually look in practice? Is this something we're still figuring out? Uh, As far as uh, handguns go, again, the problem with gun crime to a large degree is that you don't know until it happens. Uh, and so the preventative measures there is is really doing more to you know, police our borders to ensure that you know shipments of illegal guns or illegal guns that are being dragged over are being stopped. And that's a, a, another complete different conversation when you kind of understand the fact that a strong, strong, strong majority of stuff that gets shipped over a border does not get scanned in any shape or form. We just don't have the means to scan or to stop. So what does the preventative measures even look like to stop the flow of handguns into our country? Speaking of a lack of willingness to engage in enforcement on guns specifically, at least four provinces, including Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick, are saying that they're not going to enforce a future buyback program that's been discussed uh, for assault-style weapons, which is where we kind of get into this conversation of, like, does anyone even really know what we mean when we talk about different types of guns in the first place? So some of the provinces have said that they don't want their policing resources to go towards this kind of program. I think under the sort of insinuation that the sorts of people that are going to use guns in illicit and dangerous manners are not going to sell them to the government through a buyback program anyway. And so it's a waste of like time and money. So what do you folks make of those claims and of proposals for buyback programs generally? I think buyback programs are, again, not solving the issue that we have. Like the crimes that are being caused right now are, are not necessarily being caused by legal guns that are then being sold back to the government. I think anyone who is going to be using guns in illegal manners are not like all of a sudden, hey, this gun that I paid, you know, X amount for, I can sell it back to the government for half the amount. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna be like, well, I'll just sell this gun on the black market. Uh, this I'm not talking to someone who's actually thought about this deeply, but I'm just assuming uh, that uh, you know, if, I, if I'm going to engage in a buyback program, it's I'm not going to be intrigued by one, uh, and it's not actually solving the problem the government's going out in attempt to solve. And, and again, it's a lot of political theater. I covered that program for the National Post, and that list is almost just like a randomly generated list of guns. <laughs> like there is no rhyme or reason to it at all. And I was talking to one of my neighbors about it, and he's a really interesting guy who was a big, you know, NDP voting lefty who also likes to you know, spend weeks in the woods and he has like a cabin up north and has a lot of guns and he just couldn't fathom it. Like it wasn't even the policy that bugged him. It was just the incoherence of it all. And that is almost always the dead giveaway that it's political. If if they really cared about it, if it was a good program, you would put a lot of time and effort into making sure it's right. But uh, that was definitely not the case there. I was going to rob that bank, but then I realized I could get 20 bucks for my gun, so I changed my plans. That's it. Let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when I will maybe or maybe not still be appearing on beloved game show Jeopardy. 
If you're following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. You can also find me on Jeopardy again for the Tournament of Champions next week on November 8th, playing in an exhibition game, and on November 11th, playing in my actual competitive semifinal, and hopefully, if things go well, don't spoil it for me, maybe in finals after that. Jaskaran, where can people find you? The easiest place to find me is on Twitter, at JaskaranSandhu underscore, or they can read the stuff that I help push out on at BozNewsOrg, also on Twitter. Stuart, what about you? I'm at thehub.ca and it's Stuart X Thompson on Twitter. And Arno, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm at Twitter at Arno Kopetsky. Since we last spoke, Liz Truss resigned as British Prime Minister, making her the shortest serving British PM of all time. The longest serving PM in British history was Sir Robert Walpole, who actually served for over 20 years. I wanted to remind you all that it's crowdfunding season. We truly rely on your support to make this show possible. If you enjoy The Backbench and value the thoughtful and nuanced conversations that we work so hard to bring you, please show us that you value our work by becoming a supporter. You'll also get access to bonus content and special deals on live events, which may or may not be in the works, so get excited. Without you, this show can't go on. Sign up at candleland.com join to become a supporter so that we can keep bringing you stories from the best seats in the house. This episode was produced by Viva Lassard with additional production by Noura Azrie and Tristan Capacchione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everyone. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Smart.